This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Virginia Trioli, and welcome to episode two of my new podcast, You Don't Know Me. Each week, I ask one person my seven set questions to delve into the private histories of some remarkable Australians and to get to the heart of who they really are. So let's dive in with this week's guest, who you already know pretty well, co-host of ABC's CoronaCast, He's the host also of The Health Report on RN. His latest book is So You Want to Live Younger, Longer. Dr Norman Swan, hello. You're just going to tell me to exercise more and not drink too much, aren't you? Hi, Virginia. There's a bit more to it than that. Oh, come on, is there? That's why I've written 300 pages. <laughs> exactly. I've got to fill it out somehow. <laughs> if I was your editor, I would say, Sonny, reduce it down to an article, please. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, forget this idea of a book. By any metric and looking at any research that's coming out anywhere, how often the best advice is distilled down into exercise, consistent exercise and exercise where you get your heart rate up at, at least a few times very high. Yeah, I think, so there's no question that's huge, but there's a lot more to it than that. First of all, a lot of people just don't feel able to take the exercise. Secondly, if you're taking the exercise and there's other stuff going on, you may not actually get the benefit. There's an interaction with diet. Mm. And when I researched the book, what was confirmed for me is something that I've broadcast on many times over the years, is in fact it all starts with the brain. The brain is the master control system of the body. And if things are going wrong in the brain and the mind, and the brain and the mind are one, and the brain, the mind, and the body are one, and you spoke, we spoke about this last time, is that we, we tend to behave, we all know this as a fact, and it is a fact, but we behave as though the mind and body are separate, and they're not. And if things start going wrong in the mind, the brain, and your psyche, that actually can speed up aging. And it, if it's going well, it can actually slow it down through a lot of different mechanisms. So you're not rolling the dice on your prescription of drinking less and exercising more. Let's start at the start then. Is it possible to even live younger, longer? Or is that a forlorn hope? No, it's not a forlorn hope. And well, how do you, the question is how do you define it? Mm. And in the book, I define it as your biological age. In other words, what age is your body hmm. versus what you've got on the clock? And if you look at, for example, the last 50 years, and you hear people throwing this around all the time, that 50 is the new 30, 80 is the new 50. Actually, it's true. And if you look at your chance, I mean, the, the crudest measure here, your chances of dying at a given age, at the age of 50, your chances of dying um, are roughly the same as they were at 30, 50 years ago. And it go so it goes on through the ages, right. which means that at 50, you've got less, or you've got fewer miles on the clock than your age would suggest. So we all, without doing very much at the moment, we are actually all living younger, longer. Right. Not all, but most of us. And of course, that's a passion for many people. You know, some of us deal with 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 aging and the problems that come with aging. I guess we resist it, you know, less or more than others. For those who are actively engaged in wanting to try and push out that life cycle as long as possible, what are the keys to it? Well, first of all, let's just back up a little bit. People get a bit hopeless about this. They say it's all in your genes. You know, you've got to have long-lived parents yeah, yes, yes. to yeah. be long-lived yourself. The epigenetic argument. 
That's right. Well, it's the genetic argument. The epigenetic, we'll come back to the, don't yes. forget to ask me about the epigenetic argument, because in fact, that's really important. And it's probably something that's going on here. No, it's the genetic. Have I inherited long-lived genes? And it turns out when you look at the genetic influence on longevity, it only really operates at the extreme of old age. So 50 years ago, that would have been in your 90s. These days, it's in your hundreds. 50 years ago, it was a genetic abnormality to reach 100. A nice genetic abnormality, but a genetic abnormality nonetheless. Mm. You did have to have genes that got you to 100. These days, you can get to 100 because you've done a lot of other stuff in your life that just plays out and goes well for you. And I'll come back to what those might be. And then the genes start kicking in at 105, maybe even 110. Uh, it's at the extremes that the genes are. And this is good news because it means it's malleable. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I talk about is get the basics right. Um, because it, what, what, what a tragedy to age quickly if you didn't need to. Yes. And that's about your blood pressure. That's about, And it's actually knowing about your blood pressure in your 20s and 30s. It's about being aware of this stuff early because if you have 60, 70 years of a, even a slightly higher blood pressure battering away at your system, that ages your body and ages your brain. So in your 20s and 30s, you really want to know what your cholesterol is, what your blood pressure is, and get them down. And in that age group, you can do it through lifestyle means and, and other things. So get the basics right. When you're eligible for cancer screening, get the cancer screening right. So these are the basics, the fundamentals, so you don't die of, of an avoidable cause prematurely. And then there's a whole heap of other things. One, Another one is know what people in your family died of at, at what age. Yes. And, actually, and you actually need to be, you need to be a monitor for that and you need to be an advocate for yourself over that uh, with your, the people who are looking after you and your healthcare professionals. You'd never know it, but I... <laughs> I'm grumpy. <laughs> Swear a lot. Oh! Like telling stories. I mean, sometimes I'm an introvert, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of moody. Um, I sometimes think I'm not a very nice person to be with. Give me an example of the grumpiness. Do you snap? Can you snap at people? I try and I really work hard at not doing that. That's a, a, a terrible thing. I, I tend to um, rage into the night. So even though I might be angry at a particular person, Yes. I, you know, I usually can, before I snap, I can see, I've learned over the years to see their side of it and realise there's circumstances behind it and it's really unfair, particularly if it's somebody who's not in a, in a position of power. Mm. And so I, I kind of keep my grumpiness to myself or it becomes generally expressed rather than to any one individual. So I just sort of so you swear a lot so you, so bang do you, into doors. Do, do you seethe? Are you one of those sort of seething people? I am a seething person, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, that's not good for longevity. No, it's really not. You've got to <laughs> let go of that stuff. <laughs> you, talk, you used to talk about the type A, type B personalities. Yes, yeah. You know, the type A being the fast-moving executive. Uh -huh. And it doesn't actually play out like that. But the key thing is, is what they call hostility. And one way, one way of <laughs> measuring hostility is that you're in the 12-item queue at, when they used to have 12-item queues at yes. the supermarket. And you'd 
First of all, you'd count. This, this is the first part of hostility. You Uh-oh. count how, what's in the other person's thing, and then you get angry and then when you they're see got because they're. Oh no! Yeah. Don't say that. I, I feel, I feel um, worriedly seen when you describe that. Uh, th- before I move on, if you do snap and blow up, do do you apologise for it afterwards? I do. Okay. I do. Yeah. I, I look. I I have. Um, Again, using sort of Freudian terms, I, I basically have gone through life with an inferiority complex. Some people call it the Stockholm Syndrome or whatever it's called, you know, where I just think I'm a bit of a fraud and I'm, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm going to get caught out. Yes. And, and, I, and I think the longer you go in the media, I think more and more people would admit to that. And, mm. you know, so I, I just am very careful. Well, the fork in the road I almost took was? Acting. Ah, how did it, how did the bug get you? Describe the beginnings. The beginnings when I was probably fourteen and fifteen, and in a youth club, and I had a drama club within the youth club, mm-hmm. and I got hooked. There was a really good drama teacher as part of this, and we used to do um, probably a play every three months, and got the bug of um, you know putting on makeup. Um, and the smell of grease paint in those days, it was very different makeup. Yeah. And the lights and feeling an audience there and the audience responding and becoming something else. I just loved it. And I decided um, that's what I wanted to do for my career. I wasn't bad at it, but it, this was amateur theatre. And I thought I was going to go to the, the Scottish Academy of Dramatic Art and... Um, try telling a Jewish mother that her son, the Jewish doctor, was going to become her son, the Jewish actor. This did not play well in suburban Glasgow. And I succumbed to pressure. And in the end, I did come to the conclusion that I would not have been a great actor and it was safer to be a second-rate doctor than a second-rate actor. Oh, well, but <clears throat> but if you didn't have the formidable figure of your mother standing in your way, you would have pushed ahead, yes? And she was formidable. I'm um, sure. A lot of my life has been kind of measured against my mother. That's the other thing you never know about me, but is um, my mother sits in the background of a lot of things. No, well, I, I actually did break out. So I, I went through medicine and graduated, and I was working in London in teaching hospitals, uh, very hard, one and two roster, and this dissatisfaction. Um, I've told the story before, but I don't know if I've told it to you before, but I was obsessed with the theatre, as I told you. Mm. And I'd got, Glasgow Citizens Theatre was a, one, of the, one of Britain's great repertory theatres. And it specialised in Brecht and Ibsen. In oh, other wow. words, it was in the middle of the Gorbals in Glasgow, and so they specialised in miserable <laughs> plays. <laughs> and at one point, and I used to go to these by myself, and, um, and I went to see Ibsen's last play, which is not often played. And it's a, it is a miserable play, and it's towards the end of his life. And there's a character in it who's the playwright or the writer, who's obviously Ibsen. Mm. And there's another character, and it's in a mountain resort. And this other character comes along and says, "I'm going to, you know, we're going to go a walk, and we're going to take you up to the top of the mountain." And that must have been a 15 seeing this. And um, and I'm paraphrasing, and this is from memory as well, is that somewhere at some point the dialogue was that the writer says to this mysterious man who's taking them up the mountain. Why are we going up the mountain? So, well, we're going up for the view. And it's okay, well, but what will we see when we get to the top of the mountain? What will the view? Well, we'll get a view of your life. And what will I see when I look at the view of my life that you never lived? 
And this enter, you know, they say like you shouldn't smoke marijuana when you're under, you know, 20 because it's going to change your brain. You shouldn't smoke, it's going to change your brain. You shouldn't go and see Ibsen's last play because it'll change your brain. <laughs> and I, I, uh, it went that way into my brain. And the, the notion that late in life you could be disappointed mm. or have regret about the things that you wanted to do was an appalling thought and it's for me it's still an appalling thought and and it drives um, and it drives your feet yes yeah. and the uh, so when i graduated i thought well i'm still feeling this need i didn't want to get to the age of 50 and look back and wish there was something else that i'd done so i did an audition for the royal academy of dramatic art in london and failed miserably I and mean, it was embarrassing what about i always try to be humble how does that work out for you um well, I think it's both a Scottish and, a, and an Australian thing. I think it's one of the things that are very similar, but the Scottish, the Irish, and and and, the, and Australians, is that nobody likes somebody who big notes themselves, who thinks they're bigger than they are, and um, and I think I've just grow, grown up with a, a, a sense that you need to be humble. There's always somebody who's going to be cleverer. There's always somebody, you know, who's got something to tell you. Mm. You don't have all the knowledge and you should just be humble. And that's particularly so when you're reporting on science and medicine because you could confidently report somebody's got the cure for cancer and then the next day you find that it causes cancer. So you just got to be humble in the face of life it's an interesting observation for someone who and you described your your mother as looming large in your life and always in 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 the shadow there or off stage and and playing a role because a a formidable mother like that can be uh both i guess a a threat and perhaps uh, holding you back in some regard but also uh, demanding you to rise to the challenge and to be, you know, everything that she hopes and anticipates you will be. So humility can go hand in hand, though, with with wanting to to reach the heights, and the two may not necessarily hold each other in check. That's true. In my case, my mother was the threat rather than the you know, building the pinnacle for me for me to go to. The, the pinnacle was never clear, and there was too much. My mother was a, was, a, was a kind of a damaged person, not quite a sad life in some ways. And I was listening to David Williamson at a writers' festival recently, talking about his mother and the, 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 the pigeon pair, really. Um, and 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 so, I mean, I think that my relationship with my mother has affected my relationships. I've, uh, in what the, way? Well, I think she had borderline personality trait. Mm. And um, I hate putting labels on things. But it really meant that you could never trust the mood that she was in or the moment that you were in. And so, and things could turn around incredibly quickly against you and you lost trust. So you could not trust a conversation with your own mother. And my father was frightened over him. My father was a nice man and um, really loved him, but was terrified of my mother and really so terrified that you could never confide in my, could never confide in my father. You know, it takes me a while to trust people. Yeah, that makes sense. Norman Swan, what about I never? Well, I try never to say never. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm borderline um, outlawing that answer. I know, I know. Well, it it goes along with the humility. I know I'm making a lot of this, but when I was younger, the never answer would be, I never presume anything of a woman that I'm talking to. So I was 
terrible, you know, when I was young and dating and what have you, I was terrified of being thought of as a sleaze bag or coming on mm -hmm. or crossing the line, even long before Me Too. And um, so I, I never try to impose myself on people or assume too much about others. Well, that's interesting. And I, and I do want to match that again with your previous answer about humility, because what you've been doing over the last two and a half years has been some of the most demanding, complex and frightening broadcasting because as you say we were learning about this as we went along you're in the position of being the expert informer and yet you were learning new things about this novel coronavirus pretty much in the same moment as we were too so having to hold that position of authority and information giving and to some extent comfort even while you were not so sure of yourself must have been a really tricky thing it was tricky um, but I didn't think it through that much. I tended to try to be myself. And when I'm being by myself, when I'm being authentic, if you like, well, hopefully I'm authentic most of the time, but particularly needed to be then, which is comes back to this humility. Is look, my, my mode of communication was, and it was really to engender trust, is that I'm in this with you. I'm not sitting outside this. I know a little bit more than you do. I'm trying to tell you what's going on, but tomorrow I could be wrong. And I'll tell you if I'm wrong tomorrow and mm. bring people on that journey, which is why with Coronacast we did it daily. And I was doing a lot on some, well, you know all this, and talking a lot on radio. So it was ample opportunity to correct things that were wrong. So people started to trust that if I said something and it was wrong, you'd hear that it was wrong the next day. And, and really um, not wearing my heart on my sleeve, but if I thought something was wrong or right, I would call it out. And and you and that's where you you breach that line which is journalism and I got criticised for that possibly fairly and the the one time that I remember doing it acutely was the Thursday of the week of the Grand Prix in Melbourne and I was on ABC ABC Melbourne and I called it out and nobody was seeming to call it out and and the world started to go nuts at that point because mm. I think that what happened then was. It sparked a conversation which was already happening behind the scenes. You know, probably a couple of drivers from Monza had it. Um, there were already doubts in the state government and, um, and and created that. But I really crossed the line saying what's going on here rather than reportage. Well, that leads to our next question, which is a time that I got it terribly wrong. You may not want to use that answer, but what sparks in your memory when I ask you that? Oh, always it's a clinical story when I was still working in medicine and I was doing locums in general practice. And I've never really been trained in general practice. I'm a, a trained in paediatrics and child health. But I was for money, I was doing, um, I, I used to do regular general practice sessions and I probably shouldn't have been doing them because I was you know, doing paediatrics. But be, well, actually, I've, I do have a postgraduate qualification in general medicine, but this, this makes mm. this story worse is that a man came in to see me, um, this was in the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, and he's sitting there. He was the kind of cornerstone of this household where two families relied on him. He was a linchpin of two families. And I missed the fact that he was, he was developing a very dangerous and unstable form of, of, of an acute heart situation. Uh. I, th I thought he had stable angina, stable chest pain, and it turned out to be unstable, and he died, and the families fell apart, and that haunts me. As a clinician, 
How do you atone for that or, or can you atone for that? Is it some other process you go through? You atone for that with your conscience and, you know, it's lived with me for decades. Um, there's no atoning for it. Have you forgiven um, yourself? No, no. I mean, I, I, I apologised to the family. I, I, when, when, the, when I saw them, I, I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I just didn't see this. I, um, and I'm, I'm sorry that this has happened. And they didn't blame me. Um, but I certainly blamed myself. It's a hard thing to go through. Did it change you as a as a doctor, as a writer, as a communicator? Well, it just made me realise that your ears are your most important organ. <laughs> and of course, if you're a good interviewer, you that's what you're doing. You're just listening, listening, listening and not following something at rote. And I didn't listen enough. The next question is, is the small thing, but I'm still so proud that I... Look, they've all said this to you, and I'm, probably, I'm going to do the same thing. I mean, there's, it's hard to be more proud than having your kids and seeing your kids do well. And, um, you know, I... Ah, I, but I'm, that's no small thing. No, it's no small thing, but you know, I've had failed relationships, and, um, and, the, and to have come through... You know, with kids that have done well is something that I'm intensely proud of, and and I, and I really you know a, lo a lot of that, if not most of it's to do with their mum, but um, you still can bask in their reflected glory. What's your secret pleasure or your guilty pleasure, Norman? Stain removal. Excuse me. Stain removal. If I see a stain, I get great pleasure <laughs> at removing it. All right. You didn't, you didn't expect that. No, no, no. But you have my full attention. Quick fire round. Berry stain out of a white shirt. Um, well, you. it's the same process mostly for things. I have a bottle of what I call spritz. And Made up of? Well, it's actually a commercial spritz. Okay. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. And, then, and then I spritz it, rub it, hot water, spritz rub it hot water and if it's still you know you get it as as um, as light the stain is light as possible and you soak it and you bring it out and then you wash it um try not to seal in the stain i mean i don't have a different technique for different stains people make a science of the different stains yes but I find I, yeah I, i'm one of them but this is why i'm listening so intently yeah i i i tend to have my all-purpose bottle and they work for most stains <laughs> So, if, if in this fact, the pants I'm wearing now were terribly stained the other night, and I've had them soaking for three days, and the stains are all out. I'm really pleased. About nicely it. done. Yeah. That's the Scott in you, Norman. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Norman, your new book is called "So You Want to Live Younger, Longer," and I think with your outlook on life, there's no doubt that you're going to get there too. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Virginia. You Don't Know Me is presented by Virginia Trioli and produced by Katrina Palmer, Kelsey Rettino and Jules Hay. Audio production by Ross Kay. On the next episode of You Don't Know Me, you're hearing from Tracy Grimshaw. She joined Channel 9 in 1981 and in 1985 began presenting National 9 News. She's been the host of A Current Affair since 2006 and has just announced that she'll be stepping down at the end of the year. I didn't grow up wanting to be a journalist at all. Um, I'd never even thought about it. It wasn't on my radar. I was, I wanted to be a vet. I mean, you know, when I was a little kid, there was a 
the time when I wanted to be um, uh, in inverted commas an air hostess because I, I love the idea of back when I was a little kid we called them air hostesses not flight attendants that's right um, and I wanted to be a hostie because I wanted to fly around the world I thought that was very glamorous that's next time on You Don't Know Me and in case you missed it episode one with Sean McAuliffe is available right now thanks for listening Hi, I'm Kurt Fernley, Paralympian and proud person with a disability. And I'm Sarah Shands, mum of a bright, bubbly, hilarious kid with a disability. I'm an hilarious, I'm fabulous. We're the hosts of a new ABC podcast called Let Us In. Each week, we'll speak with people from around Australia to find out what it's like to live with a disability. She belongs in society, but she's not going to be separated because of who she is and her disability. Every time I arrive at the airport, I turn into someone I don't like. I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, they keep you alert. The way that I think about it is that shame is the voice of rejection whispered in the inner ear that says, I am not worthy. Real stories from people with disability about what's really going on. Let us in. The new episode out every Wednesday on the ABC Listen app.